2: It's Minnesota Sports Rewind. Rounder to short. Bartlett, Tomorno, and the regular season is over. Win number 96. And right now, the Twins own first place. They've got a batting champion, a likely Cy Young Award winner, a likely MVP. And they are the hottest team going into the
0: playoffs. Welcome in to Minnesota Sports Rewind, where we do deep dives into prominent Minnesota sports events, games, trades, moments, etc. My name is Phil Mackey, and this episode is all about perhaps, perhaps, the best Twins team that never was. The best Twins team that never won a World Series, although we are going to debate that, and we are going to dive into it. The 2006 Minnesota Twins. Our crew for this live episode, by the way, and if you're wondering where's Vikings Ventline, where's Ventline, uh, Ventline will return. Today was supposed to be opening day across Major League Baseball, and we are celebrating in a number of different ways on Score North. It's still opening day to us, dang it, and uh, we're going to take a look back at one of the great Twins teams of all time, the 2006 squad with Judd Zolgad, hello, Derek Wetmore, hello, and Declan Goff, our producer on the board over there. And gentlemen, there are so many things to get to. Justin Morneau is expected to join us for this episode. But I want to set the scene and just give a brief summary of events because this was, in so many ways, a monumental season that started as off the rails as you can possibly think of. So I'm going to go through this. You guys jump in here, and then we'll get to our meat of the episode, which are the key questions we can dive into. But in the end, the 2006 Twins wound up as one of the best regular season teams in club history, MVP Justin Morneau. Batting champ Joe Mauer, Gold Glover Tory Hunter, Cy Young Award winner Johan Santana, and also career years by Nick Punto, Michael Kadair, and a couple other guys, and maybe the best closer in baseball at that time, right next to Mariana Rivera and Joe Nathan. It was the regular season culmination of the best farm system in baseball over a 10-year period, blending that initial contraction twins era with guys like Torrey Hunter and Michael Kadair and Johan with the Joe Maurer-Justin Morneau era. But the first part of the season was a total disaster and a totally different story. So the Twins were coming off three division championships in four years after missing the playoffs altogether in 2005. And they decided, all right, can't miss the playoffs anymore. This is a division championship core. we got to we got to make some big moves in free agency in the offseason. And so they signed... Tony Batista and
1: Rondell White. Big moves. in the winter. Those
3: big moves.
1: <laughs> Tony Batista had, and I, I think, remains among the Twins' top five all-time batting stances. Yes, he's got. Do you that remember for that him, yeah. wide open bat? And man, did he stink! Just
3: quiet, just sitting here, hands soft as a. As a bird, and uh yeah, not a lot of thump in that bat that year it was Did uh, he get released midway through the season,
0: yes, in fact, very good in, in fact there was a there was a, a turning point here in just a second. we'll get to Juan Castro, by the way, started the season as the shortstop for the twins and and it was just a disaster. The twins were twenty five and thirty three on June seventh, eleven and a half games out of first place. Batista was terrible, Castro was terrible, all these guys were terrible. And on June 14th, June 14th was the turning point. June 7th was their worst record, but June 14th was the true turning point. That's when the the Twins called up Jason Bartlett to play shortstop. They moved Nick Punto over to third base on that same day, and the Piranhas were born. Jason Bartlett, Nick Punto added to Luis Castillo, and those were the core Piranhas of 2006. Shannon Stewart, Lou Ford, and Jason Tyner were sort of honorary part-time Piranhas Mm -hmm. who didn't play on a daily basis. Uh, so the Twins wound up after that point winning 19 of 20 games during that stretch. They vaulted back above 500. They eventually completed one of the greatest division comebacks of all time, overtaking the Tigers on October 1st, the last day of the regular season. The Twins finished the year after they went 25 and 33 to start, 71 and 33, a 111 win pace from June until October. And then in a flash, they were swept by a ragtag Oakland athletics team. Three games and out in the postseason. One of the most amazingly fun, but also bittersweet seasons in Twins history, gentlemen. What are what are the, the main things that you take away and remember from that year?
1: I would say this, as, as I went through and researched that season yesterday for this show. The thing that occurred to me, and in retrospect, because his second time around was uh, so ineffective. The thing that occurs in looking at the roster construction that they went into 2006 with... And the subsequent moves that were made and the players that emerged, uh, within that season. This was very much a time when Terry Ryan still had the big time fastball as an executive. Because if you think about that, if you think about the start of the 2016 and let's take that start guys into 2000 and take your pick 13, right? Yeah. They probably fall apart. They probably do the wrong things. They don't do the right things. And, and for the twins at that time and Gardy and Terry especially, to start your season with some signings, the entire left side of your infield is based on we got these veteran guys, they're going to help us, and they are a disaster. They are terrible. And Terry hits the pause button for one second and says, okay, but I can fix this. And so 2006, because by the end, we what? We mocked the twins way, right? We're like, yeah, the twins way, they lose, they don't sign guys, they're not good. But this was why, to me, that phrase came up. Because Terry Ryan, Derek, very much within a scope of looking at how things were falling apart, said, I can fix this. And in a season, while it's going on, while things, as Phil referred to it, are going off the rail, fixed it, and it worked really, really well.
3: One of the smartest scouts that I've ever met. One of the smartest baseball people that I've been around. We can talk about later in his tenure later, if you guys want to, but... Two things come to mind, and it's exactly what Judd's talking about. 2006, wow, masterstroke, and also kind of some fluke, random luck. Like, that team had a ton of talent, but also, I still look at this roster, and I say, like, how did they make that? Phil just mentioned 111-win pace for like four months? How? That that just doesn't happen for even the best teams. So I think of that stroke, and I, of course, I think of the Shannon Stewart trade and I guess the AJ Prezinski trade. That guy really had a big fastball for a long time and is a big reason why the Twins were so good in that decade. That That is probably the all-time collection of how did that group of players get so much more out of the roster, I don't know where to assign credit, but it is an amazing set of players.
0: You know, I I think my main takeaway, and this is sort of an, obsc- an obscure takeaway, is I just remember this frenzied three week period where they win the 19 out of 20 games, and it was it was sort of reminiscent of the 1991 season where it was it was it 15 straight wins in 1991 in the spring? Yes, where you just go on this cr- crazy tear first half of the season, and it puts your team on the map, and they emerge from this period. And now they're eleven games over five hundred. They've established them. Liriano has been put in the starting rotation. We'll get to him as well. And they look at the standings, and after winning nineteen of twenty games, they cut the lead from eleven and a half to nine. <laughs> yeah. It's like what? <laughs> good luck. The Tigers were so good that year, and the Tigers wound up representing the American League in the World Series in two thousand six. And um, and I just I just found it so fascinating that you could how, how as a team can you go 19 of 20 and you're playing with your your you-know-what on fire mm-hmm. and you look up at the stands and you're still nine games back and then to keep pushing forward and chip away, chip away, chip away. In fact, as the season played out, they were still ten and a half games out of first place. They were 65 and 46 on August 7th with five weeks to go in the regular season. And they were still ten and a half games out of first place in August. So, I mean, the fact that you overcame a ten-and-a-half-game deficit with less than two months to play in itself as one of the great feats in regular season baseball history.
1: I still recall being in a—I was covering the Vikings in 2006. That was Childress's first year, and the Vikings lost a relatively early-season NFL game in Buffalo. And we found out that that's the game where the Twins had won and stuck around to find out what happened and that the Metrodome stayed full. And I do think that that was part of the process, too, of, at that time, this town embracing that team. That this town, you know, if a baseball team is good, it's so much fun. And there's small things that make it fun. And I remember being in the press box at Rich Stadium that day and just hearing that all the fans basically stayed and the Twins stayed out and watched that game until the conclusion and found out that they had won the division And so that sort of became this magical thing. But I do love, I do love the bookends of it didn't start well. It didn't start with them being hot and sweeping through. It started sort of disastrous and guys that you had signed fell apart. And then the reinforcements come. But as Derek said too, that was the first year that it became clear what a complete steal the Przinski trade had been. Like the Przinski trade up to then was a nice trade and then you're going to get to him. But then Frankie comes up, and now you've got Nathan, a converted shortstop to a closer, and Frankie. And it was one of those... Enjoy this trade, because executives from now on are going to be very guarded about being, yeah, I'll throw him in, I'll throw him in too, for A.J. Pruszynski, who don't forget, one year, despite his success in Chicago, exactly, lasted one year and was a disaster. It was awful in San Francisco. One of the greatest heists, for for as bad as the Ortiz release will always be remembered, and it was, that was one of the greatest heists in Twins history to trade one catcher who was going to be replaced by a guy, who in 2006 became the first American League catcher in the history, in the history of the league, to win a batting title, and you got that much back for AJ.
3: Well, and don't forget, too, okay, Joe Nathan, Francisco Liriano, but let's not slight, Game 2 ALDS starter Boof Bonzer also came over in that trade.
0: You're not wrong. So there you go. So that's a good segue into the key questions here, which are really the meat of Minnesota Sports Rewind. And if it, if this is new for you, Minnesota Sports Rewind, we have, I don't know, 10 or 12 episodes that we have... Uh, posted to the Minnesota Sports Rewind podcast feed, Apple, Spotify, and the Score North app. Uh, going back over the last, I don't know, 10 to 12 months or so, deep dives into the 2019 or the 2009 Vikings, 2004 and 2010 Vikings, game 163. We did a deep dive into the Moneyball game. So, uh, we're going to ramp these episodes up here during this period where a lot of people are just at home and there's no live sports right now. But key question number one, what do you guys think would have happened? How would the season have finished? if Francisco Liriano hadn't gotten hurt. So their playoff rotation, yeah, I'll take a stab at this first real quick here, because their playoff rotation wound up being Game 1, Johan Santana, so nothing really would have changed there. I think Torrey Hunter still makes the ill-advised dive, and the ball gets by him, and it's an inside-the-park home run. I think they still lose Game 1. Mm-hmm. Booth Bonser pitched and started Game 2, and then I believe Fred Labrum Brad-Uradke started Game 3, and the Twins... Collectively in the series, only scored a total of seven runs. So it wasn't like offense was a plenty, but game two in particular, you're not running out Boof Bonzer. Boof Bonzer is not in your top three. You're going, you're going Johan, Liriano, and then maybe Radke and Boof handcuffed to each other in some form in game three. The way game two played out scoreless through four. The Oakland A's put a two spot on the board in the fifth inning. Twins answer with two runs in the bottom of the sixth. So it's tied going into the seventh inning. And then uh, they they pulled, Booth Bonds was actually pretty good. Six innings, two runs, but they get to the bullpen earlier than they probably would have, I think, if Francisco Liriano starts. Because Liriano was the best starting pitcher in baseball for three months until the elbow gave way. I mean, look at, look at his line scores and some of these starts. I mean, it's like once his innings ramped up, he was going seven or eight innings in almost every single start. Eight and two thirds, no earned runs against Tampa Bay on July 18th uh he's going eight innings two runs 12 strikeouts against detroit the infamous home. uh start against houston and roger clements that was i think his coming out party i think that was even on espn eight innings two runs at houston on june 22nd correct yeah. i think against that lineup that was not a great oakland lineup it was like old frank thomas milton bradley like it was a ragtag bunch i think liriana gets you seven or eight innings maybe even one runner scoreless and you win a close game in Game 2. And I think the series is totally different at that point.
3: So, I I could be remembering this wrong, but I think, I think Phil, that dive that you're talking about where Tory Hunter goes sprawling out in center field and it kicks to the wall for an inside-the-park home I think that was Game 2. Maybe it was Game 2. So, okay, let's do revisionist Let history it. here and pretend that if a butterfly flaps its wings in Uruguay, you know, there's a tornado in Istanbul. I don't know. If... Liriano is healthy. They still have a great team. It was, game, a great it
0: was Game 2 for the record.
3: Okay, so... That, and it was in
0: the 7th inning.
3: So that's important to me, um, because I'm not going to go down a path of, you know, just sub in Frankie Liriano for Booth and automatic win. Not necessarily, but I think it's important to say, okay, Johan Santana lost Game 1. And maybe a lot of people feel that's where this series was lost, but I personally think if you then bring back this electric, basically rookie, call him a rookie... Uh, you know, Cy Young candidate, untouchable, 30% strikeout rate, wonderful starting pitcher, Liriano, in Game 2. I think, despite the fact that Booth Bonds are pitched well, I do think that there is a uh, performance lift. And importantly, this is just my made-up brain, a so- psychological lift that sort of just... You know, do you need to take that same risk or do you just try to keep it in front of you and get first and second two outs and trust your guy to get out of it? It feels to me like it would have been different. Then you're 1-1. You've still got Booth Bonds or Brad Radke, however you want to use that. But my thing in short series in the playoffs, it's always, always, always flip a game and you flip a series. And I think Liriano would have given him that chance.
1: He would have. He might have, but here's what I'll go back to because I remember watching that series and having very much the same feeling about that series that I did about the ALDS this past year against the Yankees. And it's this: you picked a, the bad time to go cold. You just didn't play well. Sure. Yeah. You spent three games, and and that goes to Game Three in Oakland, which is the Radke eight to three loss. And I looked this up, and I had forgotten this one: eight to three loss, three earned runs against the Twins that entire game. Three errors, including one by Radke. You just picked a really bad time to go really, really, really cold. So could you have, have won a game with Frankie and salvaged it, perhaps? But i feel more comfortable saying that if Booth got blown out. Like if Booth had sure. given up eight runs, you'd be like, yeah, that was terrible. But man, those short series, sometimes things go go wrong. And in that series, things went went wrong. And you know, keep in mind too, it's important to point out games 1 and 2 were at the Metrodome. So you had everything going for you and you scored a collective four runs and were outscored 8 to 4 in those two games. So does Liriano help? Maybe. Did you play really bad baseball for 3 games? For, for what you were capable of doing yes. and and what you had been doing. And did the whole comeback of playing so well for so long catch up to you? That certainly happens in sports.
0: And then there's there's and and who knows how valid this is, but there's how much they celebrated after winning the division. They had they had clinched a playoff spot long long before, like <laughs> a week that before. Is that the
1: story of the of those twins? Yeah, we won the division! We, we won 163! We, we
0: Who's got the booze? And that's what it was, right? Because they, they clinched the division on the last day of the regular season. Yeah, that's the one they where celebrate. they stayed out
1: there and watched the game with the fans and then yeah. celebrated, yes. And like, okay,
0: you you completed one of the great division comebacks of all time and you should celebrate, but at the same time, I think the goal at that point was much bigger than... Not that teams think about that in the moment. They're looking to celebrate right. and it's, you know, it's hard to put a clamp on that. But right. Um, but I, I just think, I, I think the fact that you look at those Twins teams from O two, three, four, 2 and specifically 2006, mm-hmm. and collectively, they just didn't bring their A-game as a lineup, they didn't bring their A-game as a rotation, and the same thing is said about 2009 and 2010 when they went back to the playoffs, all of those teams under the Guardian umbrella... And it's just like, it's too many years and too many series for it to just be like, oh, what a, man, we just went cold yeah. like at the wrong time. But they did go cold. Right. What we don't know is the why. What, like, what, what causes you to not play your best baseball
1: that many times? 03, 04, 06, 09, and 2010. What, and I think what's so frustrating about the uh, 2006 series in, against Oakland in particular that we're talking about here is this is one that was not the Yankees. So there's yeah. no Yankee effect here. That was a nice Oakland team, but you certainly didn't look at that team and think, unbeatable, right. and there was no even cachet there of, well, it's the swinging A's of 1973, <laughs> and it's Reggie and, and Bill North and Sal Bando and Vita Blue. You got no chance, right? It yes. was really not this intimidating team. They're in your uh, house for the first two games, and it sort of is, if you go back now in retrospect and look, it sort of is the same story, though, as those Yankee series, including last year now. Where you come up short, and the question that we don't know is the is was there a common theme here? Was there too much excitement about actually winning the American League Central? It's so
3: fascinating. Like both of you guys have sort of hit on this—the like sort of ragtag nature of the A's. I mean, that was a good A's team. They won ninety-three games. Eric Chavez. Uh, old Frank Thomas, remember that's who killed you in the uh, ALDS? Remember
1: how
0: hard he hit the ball
1: that, that yeah, entire oh, yeah. series? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Big
0: hurt for a Ooh, reason. But like Jay Payton, Marco Scudero. Oh, yep. yeah, trust Mark-Catze. me. Like
3: Ragtag is probably a fair description, but I did want to read off because this struck me as such a, for any Twins fan out there looking for just like a, a drop of nostalgia. I looked up on Baseball Reference the most commonly used lineups. Have you guys seen this? Did I send this
0: to you? It's a fun tool, yeah. Yeah
3: most commonly used twins lineup in 2006. And remember as Judd pointed out, you know, they made the sort of the early uh mid-June swap. Jason Bartlett, Nick Punto go in there, Juan Castro, Tony Batista go by the wayside. Here is their most commonly used batting lineup. For all the talk about the pitching that we just went through. Luis Castillo, Nick Punto, Joe Mauer, Michael Kadire, Justin Morneau, Tory Hunter, Ron Dell White, Jason Tyner, and Jason Bartlett. Love it. That gentlemen is a lineup one through nine that's a guardy lineup
0: like the quintessential ron garden higher lineup and <laughs> on top of that you think about that lineup being it's it's essentially just a split down the middle of power hitters and piranhas right and if you look at the season stats for this team so the twins effectively had three power hitters they had justin morna who won the mvp 34 homers 130 rbis tory hunter one of the best years of his career 31 homers 98 rbis and michael kadiar 24 homers, 109 RBIs. Only one other player had double-digit home runs for the Twins that year. That was Joe Maurer with 13, who won the batting title at three forty seven. And all of them to the second row. Left field at the Dome. Luis Castillo, three homers. Jason Bartlett, two homers. Nick Punto, one. Rondell White only had seven in 99 games. So, um, key question number two for you guys. And we'll get to the big grandiose question toward the end here, but... Who was your favorite piranha? The candidates being Luis Castillo, Jason Bartlett, and Nick Punto as the main core piranhas. But then Jason Tyner hit three twelve that season. Mike Redman, I'm gonna make an honorary piranha too, because Mike Redman oh, yeah. Mike Redmond, this was the year where Mike Redman would take over as the number three hitter in the lineup when Joe Maurer would sit it, out.
1: It was a day game. We didn't want to juggle the lineup, dude. <laughs> and Mike Mike
0: Redmond as the number three hitter. Had hundred ten trips to the plate and betted three ninety two yeah, that, that year. Great. If you're three ninety two, by the way, all of them to short right field. Just <laughs> spray that little
1: ball in for a single. If you're giving <laughs> me the option of red dog, I'm taking them, and here's why. Okay, I am as you guys know a big believer in clubhouse chemistry, right? Redmond was the smell-em guy, and I know it became a joke, but the naked walk guy, right? He'd walk around the clubhouse naked, and we all joked about it. Tube socks and a with his cleats on. Yes, with, his, but <laughs> with I, his cleats on. But I believe, I believe that that stuff can work. Now, can it work for years on end? Absolutely not. But for a team that got off to a bad start, clearly somebody, and then brought up a bunch of kids, clearly somebody kept them loose. And Redmond, I think, that was the year that he showed that he had some ability to... Manage a team probably and guide some people. And so, if you're going to include him as a honorary piranha, I'm going with him because I do think what he brought as a backup catcher, but in keeping guys loose and the smell them thing, I've still got a smell them t shirt, never worn it, fresh. Um, well, that's actually probably worth it. It's in my drawer. Money right I bought now. it and I'm like, I'm not going to wear this because it's going to be gross if I do. But I but he did a he did a fantastic job, I think, of helping keep that clubhouse probably fairly loose.
3: Phil, I don't know yours, but mine's pretty easy. Like Jason Bartlett was a really good player, a big reason they were a winning team. Obviously, I think he went on to the Rays and was voted like their team MVP when he wasn't even close to their best player on one of those World Series teams. Um just one of those glue guys everybody seemed to like. But it's easy for me to pick my favorite piranha because Jason Tyner was a sort of of out-of-nowhere, like, he looked like me in terms of body type, and I don't mean that as an insult, Mr. Tyner, I apologize, but, like, the Twins didn't even have a uniform that would fit this guy, the the right size, and he hits, like, 300, 310, something like that, gets on base at a 350 clip, and it's just, like, out-of-nowhere, where did this guy with uh, this set of tools, have such an amazing year for the Twins. He was a big reason why they won a lot of baseball games, a lot of close games late. Uh, I I love the classic overachiever, and I think
0: he fit that mold that season. So mine's Nick Punto. He played yeah. he played okay. six positions in 2006, became the starting third baseman for a stretch. Split into first every
1: chance he got. Slid
0: into first all the time. <laughs> was one of the great defensive third basemen. This is going to sound crazy, but... For his peak at third base, he was legitimately one of the great defensive third basemen. Not like of all time in terms of 15 years of longevity, but if you take the best defensive third base seasons of all time, Nick Punto would be on, I think, on a top 10 or 12 Speaking list. Speaking of a guy who gets
3: like, more out of his tool set than you would expect, if if Nick Punto was like six four with a big cannon arm, and played third base the way you did, like, yeah, that's a gold glover. People would talk about him all the time, but again diminutive and uh, for that reason sort of beloved with Twins fans but underrated unheralded as a defender and he hit like 290 that year Phil that's a that's a that's a great tab because it's another guy that I think got way more out of it than you would have expected yeah. if you just watch him walking around in Fort Myers It's also
0: just super weird like Nick Punto was one of the great working at bat guys in Twins history and there's no reason for a pitcher to ever not just like challenge him and make him hit a fastball but that guy would foul off more pitches. Like he was one of the great two strike. I'm just going to foul off like five pitches right now and drive you nuts as a pitcher. And and I'm going to put a ball in play you and maybe
3: he beat it
1: out for an infield signal. He was gritty. <laughs> he was. He should have been a left wing honorary
3: honorary Piranha Should go to Luis Castillo. Uh, I remember him more for his uh, top of the order days with the Marlins. It's like him and Juan Pierre as just these two slap hitting single hitters. Yeah. And that's sort of what the Twins lineup was molded after. You put Sort of "quote unquote" table setters at the top, and then thumpers the rest of the way as much as you can, and then go get to your secondary table setters at the bottom. Jason Tyner right. and Jason Barlow. And
0: the problem in future years was like that table setter mentality, like the guys who could handle the bat. And Luis Castillo was the same way. He'd yeah. fall off nine pitches, yeah. drive you nuts, and then all right, whatever. Just here's a here's an underhand pitch. Just put it in play. Yeah. Um, but. The, the flaw later on in the Guardi era was he tried to replicate those piranha lineups by putting like Matt Tolbert in the two hole. Yeah. Or, right.
3: Look, it Other works guys. when you've got a three fifty on base percentage. When it's two eighty or two ninety, it it's not quite as fun.
1: And baseball changed too. Yes. That's like true. Pe- people began to evolve and change and Guardi's like Red Dog's still batting third. What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. It's a day
3: game. Dude he's managing.
1: Today, game. All
0: right. When we come back, we are expected to be joined by Justin Morneau, the MVP of the 2006 season. And we will answer the question Was this the greatest Twins team to never win a World Series? The 2006 Minnesota Twins. It's Minnesota Sports Rewind here on Score. This is Tom Bernard. Can't get enough of Sports Talk with Phil Mackie and Judd Zolgad. Tune in to the new Tom Bernard Show podcast Monday through Friday as Phil and Judd join me to discuss the latest sports headlines and whatever else comes to mind. Just download the Tom Bernard Show app wherever you get your podcasts or visit TomBernardShow.com. It's another way to get more from me and Judd talking sports and having fun with Tom, and it's all at your fingertips. Download the Tom Bernard Show app now and join the conversation.
3: We are breaking down the 2006 Twins, and we are joined now by Justin Morneau with Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad, and Derek
1: Wetmore.
2: Grounder to short. Bartlett tomorrow and the regular season is over win number 96 and right now the twins own first place they've got a batting champion a likely Cy Young Award winner a likely MVP and they are the hottest team going into the playoffs. And welcome back
0: into Minnesota Sports Rewind. I'm Phil Mackey. We've got Derek Wetmore here. We've got Judd Zolgad, Declan as uh, the producer. And this is a series that we started earlier in the year in 2019. There's about 10 or 12 episodes on the feed right now where we do deep dives into prominent Minnesota sports games, events, trades, you name it. Minnesota Sports Rewind, Apple, Spotify, and the Score North app. And Justin Morneau, the MVP of this aforementioned 2006 season. Uh, we appreciate you joining us. What is your lasting memory of? I mean, let's let's say it. It's one of the great seasons in Twins history. It's also one of the most bittersweet seasons in Twins history. What's your lasting memory, Justin?
2: <laughs> Depends on which way I want to look at it. Obviously, the loss <laughs> to Oakland was, uh, you know, not what we expected with the finish that we had, but. Uh, all in all, when you have time to look back on it, it was a good year. It started off rough and turned out pretty good for a lot of guys. So.
1: Hey, Justin, what changed? So you you guys start the season with some veteran players who you had signed and get off to a rough start, and then uh, changes are made. Some young guys are brought up. When did you see things, as you recall this now, starting to uh, to shift from that rough start to not just being a good team, but a very good team?
2: Um, and it's hard to say there was really one moment or one, it was just sort of that development curve that kind of happens, you know, for me personally, 05 was, you know, my first full season, but it was also a pretty rough year. You know, 04 was pretty good, uh, the half season, we made the playoffs and all that kind of stuff and was kind of expecting the same and, you know, that kind of got exposed a little bit on a major league level of not being prepared enough and. You know, it started off kind of the same way in two thousand six and then and then all of a sudden uh realized uh some things needed to change and you know, we uh kind of moved the lineup around a little bit and obviously we had Johan who was at that time one of the best pitchers in baseball. So anytime you have him on your team you get a good chance. But uh I think it sort of came together when we all started kinda of playing for each other and, and really taking as much pride in the guys next to your next to your success as your own and we started playing as a team and we started winning as a team and really, it became uh, just a magical year.
3: Yeah, Justin, you brought up Johan, and you know you could throw in Francisco Liriano to that mix, too. I, I've heard some guys talk about this, and I wonder your take on it. What is the feeling when you walk onto the field and you know you got a guy on a mound that not only you're hoping to win or you think you might win, but you walk out there as maybe the first baseman and thinking, yeah, we're, we're going to win today?
2: Yeah, I mean, we had two of those guys going that were basically unbeatable for most of the season. I mean, when Lariano came up. It was just something I, I, you'd never seen from a, from a rookie pitcher. I mean, he, we had the Cy Young winner on our team, and he was not the best pitcher on our team. It was it was amazing what Lariano did when he came up. I mean, we had guys from Houston getting to first base. I think uh, I want to say it was Berkman struck out on a slider down and an in. He missed it by about a foot and a half, and the only way he got to first is the ball went to the backstop because it was so nasty. He <laughs> Kind of looked at me, and this is a guy who was pretty well established at that point, and said where'd this guy come from? this guy's nasty. He said, that was like Randy Johnson's slider. So, you know, we had that guy and we had Johan and we started to get hot. And and it looked like we were going to roll through. And and you know, once we got into the playoffs, it was, to me, it was almost like a, uh, Kurt Schilling, Randy Johnson type situation. If we got in, we had, you know, a one, two punch that we, we felt was almost unbeatable. Unfortunately, Mariano got hurt and it, it didn't play out that way. But, uh, that's the season I look back on. You know, ten was tough. You know, the new ballpark and all that. But oh six, the way it ended to me was it was really uh, tough. What would have
0: what, what would have been different in that series against Oakland if Liriano hadn't gotten hurt? In your mind, so it went. You know, Johan did suffer a tough loss in Game One. Uh, Boof was six innings and, and two runs in Game Two, and then there was the inside the park home run and. And then Game Three was Frey Labrum, Brad Radke, just grinding it out. But if if Liriano was the number two starter in that series, is it different? How do you think it's different?
2: I just don't think. I, I think it's almost. I wouldn't say impossible because anything can happen. But the thought of of beating Johan Santana and Liriano twice in a series, you know, either one of them seemed you know unfathomable at that time. I mean, they were just so good. They were so dominant. You know, to think of if we get the ball to Santana again, there's no way they're going to beat them. You know, if we, if we're backing that up with Lariano, it's like, how, how, the, how do you go up with the lineup game planning and then trying to beat two of the best pitchers in baseball just doesn't seem realistic. Unfortunately, that's not the way it played out, but you know, uh, we still had a chance. We still had a good team and the guys who were there did a good job, but obviously it's that, that one seemed like every year we were kind of one guy away from, you know, being healthy or really putting our full full squad out there in the playoffs. But it was still a great year.
1: For, for you personally, Justin, how, how remarkable was that year? Because it, you had established yourself, as you talked about before, as a good player. But, I mean, that year's off the charts. You become the first Twins MVP uh, in 2006 since uh, 1977 when Rod Crew won the MVP award. Just as you reflect now on that year, how special was that
2: entire thing? It was just, uh, the way it started, you couldn't have (laughs) predicted the way it was going to finish. You know, it was one of those things where (laughs) I hit hidden 230 at the end of May and, you know, getting benched in Seattle in front of my family. For me, that was the turning point. But, uh, you know, it was one of those years where I had Joe Vavre in my corner, and I, you know, can't thank him enough. You know, he's back being a hitting coach again in Detroit this year. But he, he was there. I mean, no matter what I was hitting, he just kept saying, all this work you're putting in, it's going to pay off. Good things are coming. I can wow. feel it. And I'm kind of trying to believe what he's telling me, but I'm in the back of my head going, this looks a lot like it did last year. But he was just there in my corner every day. We We're in the cage working, working on controlling the strike zone, working on, you know, using my legs better in my swing. And 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 then he's in there in my ear just saying, good things are coming. It's going to be a big year. Good things are coming. and And he just kept saying it, and he never – you know, never lost faith in me, and when you have somebody behind you like that, that that really makes a difference. And to me, I think that was a huge factor in, in my success that year. Obviously, the year Joe had was huge. The, you know, we had a good, deep. We had a deep lineup. We had some good young hitters, so it was a combination of a lot of things. But I think I got to give a lot of credit to Joe Vava.
1: This might sound weird, but did in some ways being benched in Seattle help in the long run?
2: Oh yeah, of course. Anytime, you know. I don't want this to come out the wrong way, but you know, you can take money away from major league players. You can find them, but you can only find them so much, you know, where you really get hurt is when you lose that playing time. This is, you lose the ability to run out on the field. That's when you really feel it as a player. And then, especially for me being in Seattle is the closest, you know, major league city to where I grew up. I mean, every time we went there, it was 40, 50, 60 tickets. You know, my parents are there. It was the only place they didn't have to fly to to come watch me play. So all those things and, and, And I'm sitting on the bench watching, and people are going, "Why aren't you playing?" And you know, I was uh, a little distracted away from the (laughs) away from the field. To put it mildly, you know, too worried about entertaining all those people that were down there, and and end up getting myself into into some trouble, and got to pay for a whole hotel room uh, or a whole floor worth of hotel rooms. So. (laughs) <laughs> kind of uh reinforced that lesson and honestly I walked into the office that Terry Ryan was in there Gardy was in there and I thought I was getting sent down at that moment I mean I was struggling I was you know not preparing the way I should be it was kind of a repeat of the year before and you know when they just told me they expected a lot more out of me they you know I had Gardy telling me it wasn't so much of a lecture it was more of a you know you need to wake up and see the talent that you've been blessed with and you need to be able to take advantage of that and and then everything kind of went from there. I started taking better care of myself. I started preparing better. I started, you know, just doing the little things you need to do to be a successful major league player. And when all those things came together, that's when it really kind of took off. And, and uh, you know, it was, a, it was a wake-up call. And sometimes taking playing time away from a player is the best thing you can do for them.
3: Justin, you obviously had a great year that year. and I'm going to ask you to talk about one of your teammates who had a really good year, too. And Joe, uh, going into the last day of the season, now... I heard a story about uh, Joe Vavra sitting in his top step of the dugout or whatever, sort of calculating out all the numbers as Joe got his two hits on the last day of the season. Do you remember that? And can you confirm or deny sort of the, the vibe in the dugout as that was happening?
2: Oh, yeah. We were all. <laughs> Joe. So in the, in the metrodome behind the dugout, there was our little bat rack, and there was a couple of little computers back there. It was basically where they stored all the sunflower seeds and the <laughs> sure. extra gum and all that stuff. So it was kind of the bat boy's room, but... We turned it into our makeshift video room in those days. It was kinda of when it was first starting to come in. We had the laptops back there and you could go and check on the, the picture or your at bats or whatever. And then Joe's back there with a piece of paper writing down this is what happens. He's got the calculator, he's figuring out, okay, if he does this, this is what we go to. If Cheetah does this, this is what happens. This is and he's going through all these scenarios in the back room and as soon as Joe got two hits, they kinda of put everything out the window. Yeah. But it was it was one of those things where we were all aware of it because we knew, you know, it's very rare that you get to understand that you're witnessing history. You know, you, you see it as a perfect games going along and all that kind of stuff. But the first catcher in the American League to win a batting title, you know, just the significance. Everyone understood Joe was the hometown guy. or He came from there. Everyone was cheering for him. Everyone, you know, wanted to see this success story. and, And we all kind of were aware of it at the same time. The game was still important. You know, we still needed to win that game. So, there was a lot going on that last day, but yeah, that's definitely a true story.
0: <laughs> Justin Morno, what is your best, your best Mike Redmond story that uh, that won't get us all fired?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, there's a few. I don't know i i used to I used to love them. We always used to do the day games. We do the anthem on the field, and a lot of the day games, you know, Joe caught a lot of games, but Red Red got a lot of the day games behind the plate and. We'd be sitting there, and the kids would get announced and run out to their position, and then Redman would be standing in the dugout, and he'd be yelling out to the kids, sorry, number seven's got the day off. He's almost apologizing from the dugout that the kid's going to be disappointed when he sees number 55 running out behind the plate. So he'd be screaming. It would kind of wake us all up for the day games. We'd all start laughing. I don't know. Red had that ability to just kind of make you laugh when you really needed to laugh. But he was he had such a dry sense of humor, and, and there's some other stuff he did, uh, you know, in a food room that's probably not uh, sanitary (laughs) uh, (laughs) health-wise. Wait, what? He was one of those guys that you really (laughs) needed on your team. Well, he would, you know, just walk into the... Food room and grab donuts without any clothes on. You know yeah, that
0: yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Might get called on that today. How how frequent yeah. was he need somewhere to hang the donuts? All right, I didn't, I didn't uh, say no no, 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 no. How
1: how frequent was the n- naked walks? Because we certainly heard about those uh and read about them in the Pioneer Press and Star Tribune. Did he really walk around naked as much as w- we were led to believe?
2: Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. He took. I mean, and, so, and what was your uh, what was your so reaction had, the first time? Uh, I, well, his, his alias on the road was Oblique Man, so <laughs> he called uh, his love handles Oblique, so <laughs> they weren't really Oblique, so it, it wasn't like, uh, I don't know who I could say, it was Gronkowski or something walking around, you know, it was uh, <laughs> it was Red, and, and Red uh, was proud of whatever he was working with. You know, he, I mean, that, that, that batting cage in the Metrodome was in right field, and I saw him take, he would go in there and take naked batting practice saying he just wanted to feel free and and loose and get his swing right. So he'd be down there taking BP down there without any clothes clothes on. It sounds kind of ridiculous now. I mean, obviously it was ridiculous then too, but you know, it's one of those things, it's a long season. And if you can't laugh at some point, it's going to be even longer. So he, he just kind of did that for us. He was, he was a leader, but he was also a guy that showed us that you need to have some fun too
0: amazing i'm just trying to envision him like walking around an empty metrodome just like what if there's like you know people cleaning the seats
2: i'm no, sure they probably work the walk he wouldn't make the walk through from the from okay. the, to the down the hallway no that'd be uh getting some trouble there <laughs> no it was always, it was just a, you're aware of anybody's around you obviously couldn't get away with it now with the way everyone records everything and sends it all out sure. yeah it's uh yeah i mean the, the best was when you'd be sitting eating breakfast that he'd walk up naked with a donut and you're trying to eat some eggs and some sausage and he's a foot away from your face standing there trying to talk to you about that day's game. So he was just, just straight face, huh? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Dead serious. Like no, there was nothing abnormal about what he was doing.
0: <laughs> uh, Justin, before we let you go, and this is, this has been awesome hearing stories about the 2006 twins and, and Redmond uh, whenever we do. And hopefully we do get baseball back here in 2020. Hey, uh, what, did, what, you know, What's it been like for you? This would have been opening day today, and so um, what? What is today like for you? And what's your hope here for the for the rest of the summer?
2: It's weird. I was I was actually watching that game one (laughs) sixty three, just like I did when it was being played. But you know, I was sitting there uh, because I you know was on the bench and in the dugout, and you know was hurt with the back. But so I haven't actually seen it from a different perspective. There's some games that I've never watched. Some some you just want to be able to. Remember them for what they were. You know, I've never watched the home run derby from Yankee Stadium. I've, I've never watched those kind of things because I want that memory to be what it was as opposed to what the commentators were saying or whatever it is. So I was watching that this morning, but you know, it's kind of a somber thought, I guess. It's, it's uh, one of those things, but it's obviously hopefully for the best in the long run for, for the health of the country and, and all the rest of it. But you know, whether we get a shortened season or whatever ends up happening, I think, uh, It's going to be exciting because if it's a compressed schedule, there's going to be teams you see it every year. You know, you see a team start off that nobody expected, you know, is in in first place at the all-star break. Well, all of a sudden that team might be a uh, potential playoff team this year if the season's shortened. So I think it's going to add some excitement. It's going to add some, you know, some races maybe that were unexpected. Obviously the good teams are going to be good, but there's some of those teams that surprise you in the start of the year that might stick around a little bit longer and then have a chance at making the playoffs. I think we might have, you know, 20 teams that are close as opposed to having, you know, the 12 or 14 that we usually get. So if I think hopefully we get past all this and and everyone gets out of this as as healthy as we can and, and then we get back to some normalcy and and sports become that distraction that everybody needs and, and that escape that everybody loves to have of, of everyday life of, of, you know, kind of giving us something to look forward to that, uh, we don't have to think about much other than what's going on in that game that day. So we're really looking forward to uh, hopefully that happening in 2020 for baseball, for sure. Amen. That's
0: Justin Morneau, and we're looking forward to seeing you back on Fox Sports North here at some point soon. And uh, thanks for recapping and, and digging into the memory bank for the 2006 Twins Rewind episode, man. Thanks, Justin.
2: <laughs> no problem. Thanks, guys. All right. That's uh,
0: Twins Hall of Famer, Justin Morneau right there. Wow. Some great Mike Redmond stories
1: there, boys. I told you guys. I had a feeling about that. We might have to get
0: Redmond on
3: to defend uh, some of that. I don't in, know if he would defend I don't any of yeah. those. I, I think he's good with it. All right, let me rephrase that. We should get Redmond on to double down on some of right. those stories.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's make that a podcast so we can go in and make any necessary alterations right. Edits before it after hits the, 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 fact. the air. Because I think Redmond might not have the off button to know what he can and can't yeah. say on radio. So, final key question
0: here <laughs> on this episode of Minnesota Sports Rewind. Is this the best Twins team that never was? Is this the best Twins team to not have won a World Series? Because I think it is.
3: Well, so this is always going to be one of those I don't know questions. And partly because of my age, but also partly because you can't really compare eras that cleanly in baseball sometimes. But I mean, as I was thinking about this question before we were doing this episode of The Rewind about the 2006 Twins, an amazing Twins team, don't get me wrong. Like, the 1965 Twins team is always going to stick in my memory as just this, because I wasn't around to watch it or witness it, it takes on this almost mythical layer, right? I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't submit that 65 team, killabrew Allison, Zoyle Versailles, all of that as, yeah, they were that was a pretty good club
1: too. So I'd say this about the, the uh, 65 team, and I didn't see them either, Derek, but they didn't... I don't think they let you down. Like they got to a seven game, and of course, back then you won the pennant and went right to the World Series, but that team got to a seven game, the seventh game of the World Series. Colfax, Drysdale, uh, that Dodger team was obviously great. So I'm going to take this question as far as teams that let you down, teams where you said to yourself, well, there was more there and you didn't come close to it. And the only, the other one that I would throw at you, and this team did not make the playoffs, but was a phenomenal team. In my opinion, in June or July of this season, was the most complete Twins team I saw at that time. And then there was the Eric Fox game in late July at the Metronome as the 92 Twins. Coming off the World Series in 91, that 92 team was outstanding. They fell apart. They didn't make the playoffs. And I don't know if you went back and looked now if that would be a wild card team or not. It very well might be. Of course, the wild card didn't exist at that time. But as far as letdown and expectations, the 92 team, which had, what, traded for John Smiley to replace Jack Morris, mm-hmm. had really gone all in, uh, in trying to defend its American League championship, and then collapsed after the Eric Fox game at the Metrodome. That is the other one in my lifetime. That's the first one that comes to mind. 2006 is probably second. That 92 team, though, because they doubled down. It was a different era. They made the trade of uh, in spring training that year. It was Denny Nagel and Midray Cummings, who was actually the better prospect, the outfielder, to the Pirates for Smiley because... A jacket bolted after one year, so in my rankings, I think 92 is first, 2006 is, is second, as far as teams that didn't fulfill.
3: I've got a crazy question for you guys, but it, uh, it's about comparing eras and all of that stuff. Fast forward the clock, 10 years, pretend we're living in the year 2030. Looking back on it, does 2019 join that list for you in terms of, wow, great team, and then you remember that they didn't pay it off?
0: I don't I, I think the 2006 team was better than the 2019 team because I think 2006 had a better a far better starting rotation but it's on the list. I mean it definitely and and, and to to Judd's point about you know how much better would you feel if in 2006 they at least went to the World Series right. and put up a fight and lost in 6 or 7 or or last year's team if the bomba squad would have been You know, in Los Angeles for Game Six of the World Series against the Dodgers, and man, it just they just ran into a buzzsaw, and I don't think we would look at these teams as such disappointments because baseball, baseball is fleeting, and baseball is is random to some extent, and like you need some luck to go your way, but to just get swept clean by a ragtag team is where it really yeah that makes sense. Like Justin Morneau set up the top of his conversation, he goes, "It depends on how you want to look at it." Any given day, I mean, it is one of the it's it's. Two thousand six is probably like top three most fun I've ever had watching a season of Twins baseball in my life. Born in nineteen eighty five, it's also top three most what the bleep I've ever felt at the end of a Twins season. <laughs> Last year is also on that list. It's the same thing where it's the the ride is so fun for months and then you just get punched in the Two, face and it's 2006
1: over. Two thousand six to me feels a little bit more disappointing because that at that point had become an established playoff team as yeah. well. Though. It was yeah, a more yeah. complete like team. this is still a. a Work in progress. So, Derek, your point about 10 years from now is very difficult to answer right now because we don't know what this team is going to become. Like, this could be the jumping-off point for success. And then you go back and say, well, 2019 was tough, but they learned from that, right? Sure. And then let's say they have success in 20 or 21. Where 2006 was so disappointing was that team had components, it added more, was an established team by that point to a large degree, and then didn't just lose – got swept out.
3: Well, and I think it matters who got you out too, right? Because I mean, like 2019, the Yankees, that was a great club. Everybody knew that going in. Uh, When you talk about who eliminated you and it was like end of career, Frank Thomas leaned over and hit a few crushing home runs with Johan was supposed to win you game one, all all that stuff. I I just wonder if are we being revisionist uh, historians here or is it really just that that 2016 was the perfect collection that really felt like just like 2019 did in the middle of the summer really felt like it was a team that could do something special
0: hey let's wrap the episode uh with this idea that derek threw out before the show started here your favorite random player from that 2006 roster of all the guys who played at least a game your favorite just complete random player from that roster i'll give you mine first all right right. mine is glenn perkins Glenn Perkins, 2006, made his Major League debut as a 23-year-old. He, uh, he pitched in four games, five and two-thirds, a 1.59 ERA uh, coming out of the bullpen. Just, I'm guessing, as a September call-up. Glenn Perkins randomly on the 2006 Twins. Pitched in the playoffs, too, I think. That
1: year, he did pitch a couple. Yeah, I think he pitched a uh, game three. I want to say not random, but a, a guy who played on that team and was je- uh, jettisoned, I believe. But I think the most famous story about him is this is the year that he took out his frustrations on the door to Ron oh, Gardner's yeah. office. Osh. Kyle Loesch, of my Kyle, favorite players. In, in one of the rare Twins enraged scenes, I believe Kyle Loesch taking a bat to Guardy's door is probably the the most sort of wow intriguing story of two thousand six. So,
0: yeah, Kyle, a nod to Kyle was Osh. rough that year. He was he he pitched in 22 games with a 7.07 ERA, just one of the rare well, disaster performances. They
1: traded him in like June, right? Or they got rid of him
3: in June of that they, year? They
0: got rid yeah. of him, yeah.
3: Uh, well, you want to say Rondell White. You're tempted to say Ruben Sierra, but I went through the transaction log, guys. Ruben Sierra. I forgot that this guy was on the 2006 team at one point. I don't think he played a game, so Phil is sort of disqualifies from your question, but you remember uh Journeyman catcher, Irubio Durazzo wow. <laughs> was claimed on that two thousand six Twins team, and that has nice. to be everybody's favorite.
0: Declan, who's your favorite random player on that O six team? Phil Nevin, man. Oh That's a good Phil pull. Nevin. Wow. Yeah, that's a I good think he was. They traded s- for him at the deadline, didn't they? I think he was even a September or a waiver,
3: post-waiver okay. trade from San Diego and he was a boss in the Padres and wow. I remember being 13, 14 year old Declan being jacked because I used to play MVP baseball in 2004 yeah. <laughs> he was amazing. and Phil Nevin was coming to the Twins and he yeah. joined Brett Boone as one of the bigger collapses as a late season acquisition. But if
0: I remember right as, a, as a, a radio intern in the clubhouse for some of those celebrations in 06 at the end of the year I think there was only one, two celebrations but Phil Nevin was putting the beers back like he was the cleanup hitter for that Twins team baby. Stone Cold Steve Austin. 190
1: stuff. in 16 games, man. Yeah. He deserved a beer or eight.
0: <laughs> hey, special team. Special team. So that is a wrap on this episode of Minnesota Sports Rewind. Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad, Derek Wetmore, and Declan Goff. The 2006 Twins. Maybe the best Twins team that never was. You can find full episodes and binge Minnesota Sports Rewind on Apple, Spotify, or the Score North app. We'll talk to you next time.